Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest today is Fyodor Lukyanov, chairman of the Council on Foreign and Defense Policy, the oldest Russian foreign policy think tank. Lukyanov is also editor-in-chief of the Russia and Global Affairs Journal, which is published in Russian and English, and with the participation of the U.S. Journal Foreign Affairs. Fyodor is also research director at the International Valdai Discussion Club, a member of the Presidium of the Russian International Affairs Council. He is a research professor at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow, and he has worked as a correspondent, commentator, and editor for numerous Russian printed and electronic media, and is a former columnist with El Monitor. Fyodor Lokhanov is one of the most sought-after analysts and thought leaders about Russian national security policy, and he's with us today. My conversation with Fyodor Lokhanov about the summit meeting this week between U.S. President Joe Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin and Russian policy in the Middle East more generally begins now. Fyodor, welcome back to El Monitor and to our podcast on the Middle East. Thank you very much, Andrew. Hi. Let's get right into it. What is Russian President Vladimir Putin's assessment of his first meeting with Joe Biden, as with Biden as the U.S. president? What did President Putin want going into the summit? What did he get coming out? And where do you see U.S.-Russian relations standing at this point post-summit? Yeah, first of all, uh, we don't know the real mood of politicians because they are professionals in hiding it. But... uh, if we would judge on what Putin said publicly after uh, this meeting, uh, both in Geneva immediately after negotiations and then in Moscow uh, two days after, he sounded extremely positive. I would say more positive than he ever uh, expressed himself about uh, any talks with uh, American leaders. Uh, He praised Biden for being a highly serious, very competent person. He uh, basically rejected some claims, which uh, uh, some of uh, counterparts did that Biden was unfit. And so did this stuff, which is popular among um, Republicans in the United States. Uh, He said that, uh, according to him, Biden is extremely sharp and very Uh, well prepared for any uh, substantial talks. Uh, Again, I did not hear such a high uh, estimation uh, from Putin about uh, actually any of uh, Biden's predecessors. And it seems that uh, this meeting and the atmosphere was really much, much better than anybody could expect. Uh, As for substance, uh, it might sound a bit murky, but uh, we need to be realistic. Antagonistic, uh, very uh, problematic relationship 
between Russia and the United States uh, will remain. Uh, no one spoke about to end uh, rivalry and competition. Uh, it was not anybody's goal before this summit. It is not on the agenda after this summit. But what happened is, uh, in a way, extremely uh, important and uh, needed because a relationship between Moscow and Washington in recent years went not just bad, they went totally absurd and irrational. Uh, any agenda disappeared, actually. Uh, American question, American issue has been part of Russian domestic uh, discussion uh, since quite, quite a long time. It is no surprise. But what happened in the United States was a big surprise to all of us because Russia, after 2016, became a hot, if not the most important uh, domestic issue in the United States, which destroyed everything in uh, international relations between Russia and the United States. And uh, it, it doesn't matter uh, what were reasons for that. So we can discuss it, but I think it's another uh, issue. But what we have now, I think leaders agreed to basically come back to well-balanced, structured, and uh, uh, properly established uh, confrontation of the Cold War time, which was based on particular rules and based on understanding of mutual responsibility. And compared to what we had, say, two, three years ago, it's a big achievement. One of the outcomes of the summit was an agreement for working groups, follow-up conversations to discuss rules of the road on, on cyber, as well as strategic weapons and, and regional issues. Now, with regard to cyber, uh, we'll get into the Middle East, of course, but let's, let's talk about cyber for a minute. If my memory serves, when you and I last met in person in Moscow in, in 2017, this was soon after U.S. President Donald Trump had just taken office. And uh, the group I was with in our meeting with Russian leaders was that Moscow wanted to talk with the U.S. about cyber. It was an issue um, in the first Putin-Trump summit uh, at the G20 in Hamburg in 2017, that same year. Nothing came of that. And many American politicians uh, continued to be wary uh, that uh, Putin could be trusted in dealing on cyber. So uh, tell us a little about the Russian and the Russian president's interests in dealing on cyber. A am I correct that it, it has been on the Russian agenda uh, for a while? And uh, what are the expectations and how to overcome this level of distrust? Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Cyber has been uh, on the, on, uh, among top, top priorities of uh, uh, Russian leadership since a uh, pretty long period. And Russia was, uh, uh, I think, the first country which started to uh, raise this issue in the United Nations uh, maybe 15 years ago or, or, or something like that. So in, in our uh, political um, uh, vocabulary, uh, it was called at that time information security. And that was really one of biggest concerns for Russian uh, 
Security Council, for example, and uh, President Putin. Uh, recently, yes, uh, you're right, uh, Russia offered several times to uh, U.S. administrations, starting from Obama administration, then Trump administration, uh, to uh, engage in uh, discussions about this. Uh, it never happened because American position until recently, until Biden, has always been, come on, first... Uh, acknowledge uh, meddling in 2016 election, and then we will see whether we can discuss something. Of course, uh, it was a non-starter and uh, uh, no progress uh, has been made uh, at all. A uh, last uh, big proposal came, I think it was October uh, 2020, uh, when Putin uh, made a statement about uh, necessity to launch a broad discussion about cyber. Uh, and, uh, he, that was short before uh, US elections. And so he, he uh, basically did mention Trump. He said that any US administration would be welcome to, uh, to, to start. And we, we see that Biden changed position. So Biden is actually the first American leader who agreed to talk about this. I think he made a very right thing because uh, even if uh, we assume as uh, most of uh, US politicians and security people believe uh, that Russia uh, was and uh, remains to be very active in this field, uh, that's exactly the reason why conversations should start. I'm absolutely sure that uh, cyber activities against each other are bilateral. Uh, the question which I always uh, uh, did pose to myself uh, was why Americans, so to say, speak so much about how vulnerable they are, because uh, judging uh, from public uh, debate, US is totally uh, unprepared, unprotected, and so on. Uh, each day something happens, which I think uh, uh, maybe it's because of very high level of US democracy. In Russian case, I'm absolutely sure that Russia is experiencing a lot of attacks as well. But Russian political culture is that uh, if you don't speak about this, you make you stronger, you don't give uh, your opponents, so to say, additional uh, leverage. Uh, anyway, this area is highly important. Uh, in particular, it's important because uh, nowadays uh, cybersecurity field is empty, so to say. Uh, I mean, we don't have any rules, any norms, any uh, uh, agreed or even uh, uh, invented approaches how to address it, how to address it at, on between Russia and the United States, how to address it globally. It's absolutely new frontier. And to a certain extent, if those conversations uh, might be successful and might lead to in-depth uh, uh, discussion about this, how to uh, create a model, a scheme to address it, that might play same role as uh, arms control talks played after a Cuban Missile Crisis. Because at that time, we also needed uh, uh, a model how to minimize risks uh, in that area. 
and that worked and that worked for 50 years after that or maybe even 60. Uh, here we need to start and in case of success we might have a framework which will be very important uh, boost to uh, uh, restore trust between Russia and the United States uh, at all. Fyodor, let me ask just two more non-Middle East questions. First, how important was it for President Putin to have the Nord Stream gas pipeline off the agenda at his summit with President Biden? And secondly, how much of a priority is it for Russia to get U.S. sanctions lifted? As for sanctions, uh, the answer is very easy. No one expects here uh, that any American sanctions can be lifted uh, anytime soon. Uh, I think uh, this uh, uh, knowledge uh, came when uh, Russian specialists started to uh, carefully and uh, with uh, big interest study the mechanisms of US politics, how sanctions uh, are being created, how sanctions work, uh, what uh, might be behind particular uh, types of sanctions. Uh, it was not the case until relatively recently. It was not an area for uh, expertise and uh, uh, research uh, in Russia. Now it is. And uh, since uh, this investigation started, uh, we understood that uh, most of sanctions are basically uh, forever. Uh, it's impossible to expect them to be lifted because most of them are connected to political solutions uh, inside the United States, not on the international level, but mostly inside the United States. And uh, I don't believe that anybody here expects a sanction situation to be uh, eased. Uh, what can be discussed, not with Americans maybe, but uh, in general, whether uh, much harsher forms of sanctions and the United States uh, indeed has uh, uh, enormous leverage in, uh, uh, in this field, uh, being a de facto uh, monopoly in the international finance system, uh, US uh, uh, capacity is almost unlimited in case of wish and political will. So how to avoid sanctions which can deeply disrupt everything here, will can say Iranian type sanctions, that is an issue, but all the rest is not an issue. And again, I, I believe that uh, no one uh, expects uh, something to happen. Uh, as for uh, your first question was about, sorry, the Nord Stream gas pipeline. Uh, yeah, Nord Stream gas pipeline was uh, important, is important, but of course uh, uh, its symbolic significance is bigger than the practical one. Yes, indeed, Russia is interested in new pipelines to uh, European Union. Uh, uh, I would say now much more for commercial reasons than political reasons, because uh, uh, sometimes it's uh, highly overestimated in Europe uh, and uh, in the United States, the role uh, of uh, pipelines in uh, Russian geopolitical strategy. It used to be in the Soviet time, uh, 
uh, in a way that Soviet Union wanted to uh, to build this network to maintain and to increase uh, geopolitical stability, to, to increase interdependence. But it's not the case anymore due to many transit states, uh, which can uh, basically uh, derail everything if they want. Uh, so I think commercial uh, stuff is more important than geopolitical. But a uh, particular case of Nord Stream 2 was not so much about Russia-US, it was about uh, US-Germany. Uh, on the Russian side, the question was very simple. If Germany would uh, give up and say, okay, we uh, rank with our US allies, sorry, we cannot do anything, that would pose a huge question to Russian side. Is it worth at all to deal with Europeans in any issues if they don't have uh, any sovereignty to take decisions which they want to take. And that would be a very significant uh, signal in case Germany would agree uh, that the US uh, would kill um, uh, Nord Stream 2. It didn't happen. So now we are back to more or less normal business. I, I'm sure that uh, the whole story of Nord Stream 2 is not over. And uh, uh, European Union uh, with American support will do everything to deprive Russia uh, from uh, as many special privileges on this pipeline as possible. But still, of course, it, it, it uh, strengthened the traditional model of relationship. As for United States, I think Biden uh, made a very rational decision he decided that in the middle term and long term perspective, uh, constructive relationship with Germany is more important and uh, more beneficial for the United States uh, than this particular project. Putin and Biden reportedly discussed Syria and there will be a vote at the UN Security Council next month to reauthorize the only remaining humanitarian passage into Syria. Does Russia consider Syria a win in terms of its foreign policy or a quagmire? And what would Putin like to achieve with regard to Syria and in terms of how Syria plays in US-Russia relations? And what do you expect at the Security Council next month with regard to the, uh, the humanitarian passage? Will Russia abstain as it did last time? Will it agree or do you think it'll veto? Uh, as for uh, uh, Syrian role in US-Russian relations, I don't believe that it, this role is too big. Uh, for one uh, simple reason, uh, putting aside uh, all of uh, statements, uh, discussions, uh, and rhetoric, if we look at the dynamic and the trend of US policy in Syria in the Middle East, starting from uh, Barack Obama presidency, uh, that's basically step-by-step -step withdrawal of the United States from the region because U.S. political establishment, uh, in broader terms, uh, decided that this 
region is not that vitally important for the US interest as it was considered before. At least it is not that important to uh, place there many of capacities, be it military or others. So that means that uh, Russian activities in the Middle East since quite a long time are much more depending on positions of regional players like Turkey, like Saudi Arabia, like uh, maybe to lesser extent Qatar, Wales, uh, much more Russia has to do with those countries to understand what kind of dynamic is to expect rather than with the United States. And again, not because Russia disregards the role of the United States, but because the United States role is uh, becoming uh, less uh, passionate, so to say, for American uh, leadership. Uh, whether Russia sees Syria a win or a quickmire, I think neither nor. Uh, of course, uh, okay, it is a win because Russian presence in Syria uh, increased Russian geopolitical weight, and that had very practical consequences, positive consequences. It's not just about prestige. It's about Russian economy. Uh, if Russia would not demonstrate that level of uh, engagement and efficiency in Syria, with military force, with diplomacy and so on, I'm absolutely sure that Saudi Arabia, for example, would never engage in any uh, substantial discussions with Russia about uh, oil prices, about uh, oil production and so on. Before that, uh, Saudi Arabia was basically disinterested to discuss uh, this stuff with Moscow. Now we see that uh, Russian-Saudi uh, agreements are key element of uh, the whole market, international market, which is vitally and highly important for Russian economy, as we understand. It's not good that we are so much dependent on, on oil, but it's fact of life, unfortunately. And in this regard, Syrian intervention was practically very useful for Russia. And that's what I explained to ordinary people when I be, I'm being asked here in Moscow, some people ask me uh, at lectures, public lectures, okay, uh, uh, abstract greatness is, 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 is good, it's fine, it's brilliant, but why should we do all this? What is my personal interest in, in Syria, for example? And then I can explain exactly this. Uh, there are some other activities of Russia which I cannot explain in this way, unfortunately, but uh, Syria is, uh, is a good example. Uh, in uh, the future, I think that uh, Russia is, has no ambition to become uh, an arbiter in the Middle East or uh, even uh, less to try to replace United States there or to restore same role as Soviet Union did play in the region. So Russian interest is much more practical. Uh, of course, uh, presence in Syria will be kept as it is or maybe even increased uh, for understandable reasons. Situation in uh, 
situation uh, in the maritime um, in the space uh, of uh, oceans uh, is now uh, element of new wave of global uh, strategic competition and uh, Russian in this regard if we uh, look at Russian actions in last uh, de decade first Crimea and then Syria that increased uh, significantly Russian capacity to participate in this competition. As for other conflicts there, I would dare to say that uh, uh, those are, uh, so to say, additional bonuses sometimes, but in general, uh, be it Yemen, be it Libya, be it, uh, if we go uh, downstairs, so to say, to Central, Cent Central African Republic, it's much more about uh, trying to take some chances, but it's not about uh, long-term strategy. And what about at the Security Council? Because the United States is given a priority to the renewal of this passage that allows humanitarian aid into Syria. Russia so far has stated its uh, concerns about re reauthorizing that passage, preferring in instead that assistance should go through the Syrian government, not into uh, territory held by opposition forces. Uh, that, 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 that's a complicated question. I'm afraid I'm not uh, that deep in this uh, problem. I can say a couple of uh, general things. First of all, it's quite obvious that uh, one of key uh, priorities for uh, Russia in Syria is to step by step uh, strengthen and re-legitimize uh, Bashar al-Assad's uh, rule. And uh, from this point of view, of course, the more uh, international obligations are connected to Damascus, uh, the uh, higher chances that uh, this regime will be, so to say, re-accepted uh, internationally. Uh, having said that, I think that uh, Russia, uh, of course, is interested uh, to keep stability in Syria. And also political process, which should uh, in engage uh, opposition, different groups of opposition, uh, is in Russian interest. So, I think that uh, work with uh, those foreign forces who can um, uh, uh, who can represent some groups of opposition, be it Turkey or Qatar, or to some extent United States, if we talk about Kurds, uh, that is seen as as a way to maybe uh, 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 ease the whole situation, not humanitarian situation, to be cynical. I don't think this is the main priority for many political actors, but uh, the general uh, situation of uh, you know, political stability in, in the area. Uh, your direct uh, question, how Russia will vote, I abstain. I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> it's all right. Look, uh, Iran is holding elections today. This was also um, mentioned in the summit. Both the United States and Russia have um, are committed to preventing an Iranian nuclear weapon. Uh, Russia is a member of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action and involved in the negotiations. 
but Russia also has uh, its own relationship with Iran and is looking to deepen its defense, economic, and even civil nuclear uh, cooperation. How does Russia view its ties to Iran, including in the context of its relationship with the United States? You know, I, I don't, again, I don't believe that uh, Russian relationship with Iran uh, should be seen through uh, the prism of Russian relationship with the United States. Not anymore. It does mean that the uh, United States is insignificant. It rather means that uh, Iran is, uh, uh, is uh, changing and Iranian interests are not necessarily uh, the same as Russian interests, not against each other, but they are simply different. Uh, Iranian deal, of course, uh, the official position of Russia is very well known. Russia is supporting Iranian deal. Russia was very instrumental uh, 2015 in facilitating this deal. Uh, when uh, President Trump decided to withdraw, Russia was among those who criticized. But uh, to be honest, uh, is it uh, a big issue for Russia uh, to uh, restore deal or to, to uh, create a new deal? I don't think so. That, that's very important for the United States. It looks like Biden administration is really interested to do it. It's uh, extremely important for Iran uh, because of economic situation. For Russia, it's fine, and Russia, of course, will uh, welcome uh, if this deal will be reinstated or uh, reviewed, or at least it will happen again. If not, yeah, too bad, but it's not a high uh, priority for Russia to, to try to do something with this. A Russian-Iranian relationship is not easy. Uh, Russian-Iranian interests, uh, interests of Russia and Iran are uh, not coinciding uh, in many uh, places, including Syria. At the same time, uh, I think uh, Iran is viewed as, uh, as a country which is not necessarily always uh, very uh, loyal to Russia, but as, very, as a very important state in this area. Uh, and uh, whatever happens uh, with Iranian deal, uh, Iran will not disappear as an actor which uh, uh, has uh, its role to play. As for Russia, for Iran, I think Iranians have a lot of grievances about Russia. At the same time, they, uh, of course, they hope uh, to get benefits from uh, a relationship with Russia in including the regional aspect, Southern Caucasus and uh, the Caspian, Caspian Basin. Uh, at the end of the day, it's a tricky, not linear relationship, a rather positive, but with many, uh, uh, with many uh, additional circumstances. And uh, it has much less to do with the United States and, and the position of the United States. Uh, then it used to be, say, 10 years ago, when Iranian sanctions and um, uh, negotiations around uh, nuclear program was actually an important part of the so-called reset between Russia and the United States, 
um, launched by President Obama. At that time, Iran was really a very important uh, element of, of, of this relationship. It's not the case anymore. How serious do you see the divergence between Syrian, I, I should, excuse me, Russian and Iranian interests in Syria? Are these uh, significant enough? They continue, Russia continues to uh, coordinate its activities uh, in Syria with Iran through the Astana group. Uh, they both support uh, the Syrian government. What are the differences and how deep are those differences? Uh, you know, I think uh, those differences are, uh, are there. Uh, we should not uh, exaggerate them. Uh, what, are the different, uh, what are differences? Differences are that Iranian interests, for right reasons uh, in many cases, is to increase uh, Iranian influence in, in Syria and to make uh, Syria uh, a zone, a, a country, uh, which can serve Iranian interests in, in the region better than, uh, than it would be without, without Syria. Uh, fair enough, it might be a legitimate goal to a certain extent. Russian interest is actually to uh, stabilize Syria as it is, of course, under Bashar al-Assad rule, but to stabilize it, to uh, possibly decrease level of internal contradictions there. And here we can, we can uh, uh, confront the phenomenon that this goal is not necessarily uh, uh, coinciding with the goal of Iran, because Iranian wish to increase its influence in Syria, not necessarily increase the level of internal stability as Russia uh, would like to see it. Just inside Syria, because you know, we all of us know that it's not, not an easy country. Uh, secondly, Russia is interested to be uh, an honest broker in the Middle East. Uh, to have a very workable and uh, rational and constructive relationship with all involved, uh, Saudi Arabia, Israel, uh, all those who are in charge of something. Uh, Iran is not happy at all about Russian ties with Israel. Until now, uh, Israel is of course very unhappy about Russian ties with Iran. Until now, uh, Russian diplomacy and particularly President Putin managed uh, skillfully to avoid, uh, so to say, to, to make a choice between rivaling uh, partners. But uh, it's, it's difficult. And in this regard, uh, uh, Russia is, of course, uh, much more eager to take into account Israeli security interests uh, in Syria then Iran would love Russia to, to, make, to do it. So, you know, you, you, you are a great specialist on the Middle East. You know that in this area, you cannot expect on simple schemes. And Russia under Putin, uh, and especially since uh, intervention uh, 2015, uh, is about to make schemes uh, more and more sophisticated and complicated. Um. President Putin had a good relationship with Prime Minister Netanyahu. 
um, is the Russian-Israel relationship affected at all by Netanyahu's loss of the prime ministership? And uh, does you mentioned that uh, Russia looks to be an honest broker, but not necessarily an arbiter or to as assume the role that the Soviet Union had or that the United States has. Do you see uh, a reduced role with the new Israeli government, uh, a reduced role because of what's happened recently between Israel and Hamas, or does Russia see an opportunity for a larger role? You know, yes, that, that's a well-known fact that President Putin has a very uh, warm relationship with uh, ex-Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, this relationship uh, was very helpful in addressing uh, uh, multiple problems and conflicts uh, Russia and Israel had with regard to uh, Syria and Iran. Uh, first of all, you can correct me, but uh, I, I'm not sure that uh, we uh, said goodbye to uh, Mr. Netanyahu forever. So <laughs> the political life in Israel is very dynamic, so I will not be totally surprised if this government uh, will not serve too long and Netanyahu will be back. But anyway, even if uh, his time uh, is really over and the new uh, setup of uh, politicians will rule Israel, uh, I think uh, Israelis uh, are in this regard in the security field, very pragmatic people. They uh, understand uh, uh, arguments connected to security and force. Russia does the same. And uh, most likely, uh, Russian military, uh, Russian diplomats and President Putin will find ways how to uh, communicate with any Israeli government. Uh, only in case it will be total reshuffle of uh, uh, political establishment in Israel, but I don't believe in it will happen soon. As for uh, Palestine, uh, Hamas, and uh, the Middle Eastern Middle East uh, peace process, uh, I'm not an official, so Russian diplomats will say something else. But uh, I'm pretty sure that it's not uh, a real issue on the Russian agenda. Russia, yes, Russia has good relationship with all. Uh, including Hamas, but it's not, it's, it's, uh, it looks like a total deadlock, what is uh, happening uh, in this field. And uh, I don't see any appetite on the Russian side to try to take uh, uh, a mission which is bound to fail. So I think that Russia will, in case a Russian uh, service as an honest broker might be uh, demanded, as it happened recently, Russia offered the opportunity to, to, to host talks between uh, different factions in Palestine or Palestine and Israel, Hamas and Israel, uh, but it was, not, uh, it was not demanded at, at that time. Fair enough, so no, no problem. So I don't believe that this issue will be high under, on the Russian agenda. What about Russia's relationship with Turkey? 
the sale of the S-400 missile defense system to Turkey has been the key sticking point in U.S.-Turkish relations. President Putin has a a good relationship with President Erdogan. They continue to um, engage and coordinate in Syria, for example, even when the interests seem to diverge, especially around uh, Russian support for the Syrian government and Turkey's continued um, hostility toward toward Assad until now. Uh, where do you see Russian-Turkish relations going at this point? Uh, Russian relationship uh, with Turkey and Putin's relationship with Erdogan Uh, is an extremely interesting phenomenon because uh, this is the case when parts uh, have diametrically opposite interests. They don't trust each other and they basically have a tradition of uh, enormously uh, tense relationship in the past, mostly wars. Uh, so not a good precondition for constructive work. But at the same time, what we see since uh, 2015, when Russia uh, started uh, Syrian intervention, Russia and Turkey managed to overcome all uh, bilateral uh, crisis situations, including uh, extremely dramatic uh, uh, episode with the uh, Russian uh, pl- uh, plane, which was a military je- uh, military fighter, which was um, uh, shot down in, in, in by, by, by Turks. So this relationship is based on a mutual understanding that interests might be diverging or or opposite, but neither side can achieve its goals in Syria, for example, now even in, in Southern Caucasus, without uh, at least neutral position from the other side. To put it differently, both sides have almost unlimited potential to undermine uh, any efforts of uh, the vis-a-vis to, uh, to act. and it's better to communicate, to agree that neither side will use those uh, instruments and those capacities to destroy uh, the counterpart. It's, it's a tricky relationship, but we see that it's pretty stable. And of course, another, another thing which, uh, which is important and that to a certain extent, uh, this is, uh, uh, also, uh, it, it uh, uh, relates to your previous question about Israel. Why uh, Putin's relationship with Netanyahu or Erdogan are so uh, productive? Not because they like each other very much. In case of Putin, Netanyahu, maybe in case of Putin, Erdogan, I don't think they, they literally like each other. But uh, they speak same language of very clearly articulated interests and force which can be applied 
to defend and to promote this, uh, those interests. And it works because when all uh, involved speak in those terms, uh, it's better than to be in the uh, atmosphere of traditional diplomacy with uh, uh, omissions and uh, diplomatic talks. Uh, it's not what Putin loves. It's not what Erdogan wants to hear. It's not, not what Netanyahu uh, enjoys. And uh, in this regard, it works pretty well. Uh, the power-based, force-based relationship in the world when norms and rules uh, are going to disappear, most likely, that's the more reliable foundation for relationship than many other uh, things. Theodore, we've run out of time. Really enjoyed this conversation today. Thank you for being with us and sharing your analysis on, on the Middle East. Thank you very much, Andrew. And I hope uh, it's not our last conversation because the uh, situation will be more and more interesting in months and years to come. I look forward to the next time as well. We will return after this short break. I'm Ben Kaspit, Al Monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I am glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. Thanks again to our guest today, Fyodor Lukyanov, and to our production team of Phil Calabro of El Monitor and Beowulf Roshlin of Two Square Media Productions. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening. We will return next week, and in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcast on Israel at your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.